Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. That's a podcast uh, part of the New Books Network. Um, on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Alfred Martin, who is going to be talking about uh, the generic closet, Black Gayness, and the Black Cast sitcom. So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Uh, and thank you for writing such uh, a fascinating book, which uh, makes contributions, I think, across media studies, obviously, contributions um, to literature on uh, sexuality, on gender. Um, but it's also, I, I think, a really important statement, um, perhaps for, you know, kind of progressive uh, politics and, and certainly for social justice, both in, in, in the States and uh, also kind of more, more widely, given the kind of global nature of contemporary media. And I suppose the place to start with the book is, is its title, actually. And I'm intrigued by its title for a variety of reasons. And it would be good to hear a bit about what this kind of generic closet is and I suppose, you know, how you chose that term and, and where your writing on the generic closet has come from. So I initially began the project as most folks do, um, as or at least for most folks for the first book, um, as the dissertation project. And in the dissertation project, I just sort of, for some reason, I came up with the term, the generic closet, and I didn't really even do anything with respect to trying to theorize it. Um, I mostly, at the time, um, in the States at least, you know, we were still uh, thinking that R. Kelly was an okay thing, and he had this, um, uh, this uh, sort of short set of videos that was called Trapped in the Closet. And in some ways it explored notions of race and sexuality. And so I initially wanted to just kind of play on that um, as a title. And then when I came to the book and as I had been doing other writing, I came to the idea of the generic closet as a way to think about a couple of things. And one is 
the sort of narratology of sitcoms, uh, generally speaking. So the idea that there is, in fact, a three-act structure around um, around storytelling generally, but particularly sitcoms, because they are always so concerned with returning to stasis. So partly, The Generic Closet is about this narratology and this three-act structure, which uh, I theorize as the first stage as um, detecting, the second stage as discovery, the third stage, or third act, rather, as discarding. And so thinking about it as this way of thinking about shaping stories about uh, Black gay characters within the Black cast sitcom. And then secondly, The Generic Closet, aside from its narratology, uh, because of course I wanted to ask, why is there a narratology and why is there this three-act structure that I can, as a researcher, observe? I was interested in the way that The Generic Closet also speaks about an imagination of Black cast sitcom audiences. And so thinking about the ways that the generic closet functions as a way to understand the media industry's perhaps misplaced understanding of the anti-gay nature of Black audiences. And so that's generally where I ended up taking the term the generic closet. And so it is at terms about Black gayness, and it is also about Blackness writ large and Black audiences. You've picked up on a couple of things that really fascinated me within the book. Um, the, as, as you say, the kind of assumptions about what audiences want, what you know, um, prejudices audiences might hold, um, how you know particular groups have to be constructed for audiences to find them kind of you know palatable. Um, is, is really interesting and it speaks actually to the book's um, combination of, I think, a kind of a political economy of television, close reading of, of particular um, sitcoms and, and episodes and some audience uh, reception studies. And, and we'll kind of do all three of those uh, in turn, I think. But before then, it's probably worth doing another little bit of uh, scene setting, which is about the object of study. And, and you mentioned um, sitcoms and, and, and the black cast sitcom is the is the subject of the book and and, and this is a very kind of um, specific uh, element uh, of, of the book study and it's important I think to differentiate uh, between you know kind of sitcoms in general and your study on, on the black cast sitcom so you know we're not talking here about um, I suppose things like you know Will and Grace or Friends you, you know these um, sitcoms that saw very, you know, perhaps narrow representations of uh, gay masculinity uh, during the 90s and, and into the noughties. Um, we're talking about a very specific uh, part of the sitcom genre. Um, and it'd be good to kind of unpack the uh, the Black Cast sitcom before we get into the, uh, you know, the, the kind of key points of the book. So, you know, so on one hand, uh, I was interested in sort of thinking about what does like what is a you know black sitcom or what is a black cast sitcom? And so I was interested in in some ways looking at like what are the optics of of the thing in front of us? And so what does it mean for us to see 
a preponderance of Black folks on screen in, in a television comedy? And then what does it mean that, you know, as uh, sitcoms have allegedly gotten, or I would argue television comedies have gotten more sophisticated, they've gotten rid of the uh, the laugh track and have instead gone to, you know, what is erroneously called a single cam model versus a three cam model. So I was really interested in this sort of three cam sitcom model because in some ways I would argue it had become such an important part of television, um, both in the United States, but also in terms of what was exported uh, to global markets in terms of um, Black entertainment. And so I was interested in thinking about, you know, as you mentioned, why we could have a Will and Grace in 1998, or why we could have um, an Ellen Morgan slash Ellen DeGeneres coming out in 1997, and even why we could have a Black gay character on Spin City on a multicultural cast show. Um, and uh, and I think I said Spin City already. But um, why we could have those things that were presumably uh, targeted toward white audiences and why we couldn't have that for Black audiences. And in some ways, that is the central question or the central thing that I wanted to work through in the book and that I hope I work through in the book is thinking about before we even get to what we can see on the screen, thinking about what kinds of logics uh, function that get us the thing before we can even see it. And that's yeah, sort of what I was interested in. And, and that's a, a, exactly um, what the book does so well, I think. And, and, and it comes in two ways, sort of at, at the front end of the book. In, in the first instance, you've got, I think I called it, you know, political economy of, uh, of black television, but, you know, the kind of broader question about um, how black television is funded, about um, how the television networks have kind of come into being, the extent to which they're kind of secure or precarious, which then in turn shapes um, the imagination of the audience. But also you've got the kind of industrial production perspective when we're thinking about uh, writers' rooms and uh, how the kind of um, industrial constraints on writers' function. And maybe, maybe we'll do those in turn. So um, what's the kind of story of, of black television generally? And, and why is it that, you know, the kind of the way black television is um, kind of economically organised shapes and influences these quite narrow representations of black gay men? So uh, at a sort of... Uh, fundamental level, um, I am thinking about sort of the ways that Black audiences, generally speaking, are understood as being a sort of extra audience. Uh, And what I mean by being an extra audience is this idea that Black audiences tend to uh, be devalued which means that, uh, for instance, like just at a base level, if we're talking about commercial television, um, if advertisers want to reach 18 to 34-year-old Black viewers with, you know, $75,000 in household income, 
or perhaps 75,000 pounds in um, annual household income. That is actually cheaper per thousand to reach those viewers than similarly situated white viewers. And so what that means is that the networks and channels are in some ways disinvested in, in reaching this audience because there is more money to be made not reaching them. So when we talk about Black cast television partly, it is about sort of the, um, the visuality of Blackness that will at the same time uh, do what I've in other essays and other work, I've called must-see Blackness, the idea that Black folks are in many ways predisposed to consume Black cast content because it is rooted in this idea of being seen in, uh, seen in and by media. So at the same time that these audiences are being partly hailed by the visual, at the same time these networks are actually thinking about how they can use Blackness to build uh, an audience that advertisers will say, oh yes, like this is a thing. And then what happens as we saw with uh, networks like Fox in 1994, Fox had the critical mass and Fox had the money, more importantly, had the money to be able to buy the rights to a broadcast Sunday night NFL football. And as soon as they actually were able to uh, collect that kind of capital on the backs of Black viewers, and I would also argue um, mostly young adult white males who were interested in hip hop and hip hop culture, um, once they could do that, and buy those rights, they immediately pivoted. And so in 1993, for instance, Fox had the largest number of Black cast and Black produced television um, that has ever been on television. And then all of a sudden, by 1996, there were two Black cast shows. I think there was uh, Living Single and I believe Martin were the two that were left. And so, um, so part of it is this sort of history of a precarity. So it goes back at least until 1978, where I talk about, um, in another essay, I talk about the whiz and its precarious nature uh, within the media industries. So part of it is about the idea that Blackness and Black audiences in particular are never actually centered um, in terms of like, we really want to reach Black viewers and we really want to engage with Black viewers. And so there is a, an innate precariousness because we don't quite know how long this cycle of engagement with Blackness will last. And so that's part of what feeds the idea of precarity, which shapes the ways that uh, the writer's room is functioning because what people want to do in the writer's room is they want to maintain uh, fairly consistent ratings so that they don't actually give the network a reason to cancel the show. And so the generic closet in some ways becomes a way to circumvent that kind of um, precarity in the sense that what it does is it upholds these ideas and ideals about Blackness and Black audiences at the same time that it hails queerness for an episode or two that ultimately demonstrates the liberal nature of the cast who we're left to hang out with on a weekly basis. 
it, it's probably worth saying a bit about what kind of representations come through for, from this system because you, you mentioned the kind of three-act uh, nature, which, which I think was a really um, interesting and, and, and useful framework for understanding this because it's not that, you know, um, any of the sitcoms, so, you know, um, use, I think, Moesha, um, Stay Together, and, and, and Are We There Yet? Yeah, as some core examples but you know they're not kind of like outright homophobic in in terms of what we'd recognize as as being you know kind of um hugely offensive representations and indeed that would probably have implications in terms of you know advertisers or you know um community boycotts and stuff like this but but actually you know what is represented you mentioned you know the affirmation of a kind of liberal tolerant good guys characters um, as the kind of core cast members but what's represented is is i guess quite a narrow version of what it is to be a black gay man and, and it'd be good to, to maybe hear a couple of examples of that and, and i suppose like why this is a problem mm-hmm. so um so on one hand these representations in Moesha, in Good News, in All of Us, in um, Let's Say Together, in Are We There Yet, are right, as you point out rightly, are not by any stretch of the imagination are necessarily you know, offensive or what we might call stereotypical. And so this is actually really important because as we sort of, and what is interesting and important about thinking about um, television in the 90s is that what it partly does is it picks up on what television is doing in the 1970s in the turn to relevance in American television with programming like All in the Family, programming like Good Times, um, where they are trying to, on one hand, discuss these ideas about race, gender, sexuality, and class. But at the same time, uh, if we're talking about gayness in particular, there is an effort to decouple gayness from uh, what we might call a gender inversion kind of um, theory, wherein gay men are understood to be more feminine. um, And of course, we use these words in air quotes, and lesbians are understood to be more masculine. And so what these representations then do is they very much are, you know, it's almost as if we're seeing, you know, a Black version of Will Truman from Will and Grace. So they're very, quote unquote, respectable as a general rule. They broadly construed, don't uh, hew toward any of the kinds of uh, things that we have been told are negative stereotypes, whatever a negative stereotype is. Um, and so the advocacy work of places like Blad had been really effective in structuring how these representations could play themselves out. And so with the exception of Moesha, um, which is the first case study that I talk about in the book, um, there, is, there are no quote-unquote feminine uh, gay characters. And what I found out in my research on Moesha is not only did uh, the writer of the episode protest the idea of including this character uh, because it was a character that was written by the showrunner um, overnight after he had already turned in the script, But the showrunner actually justifies 
that character because he says, like, we are basically attempting to show a spectrum of Black gay sexuality. And so as the writer sort of read it as offensive, the showrunner, who of course gets to call the shots ultimately, reads it as this thing where it's like, well, we're showing a spectrum. And he also says, there's no way we would have had this more feminine character on the show if we didn't have the counterpoint. Because uh, he says, I believe on the quote is something like, nobody wants to offend anybody. And so there's very much these logics that continue to um, to play out. And as you mentioned, like this way of trying to avoid community outrage. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. You mentioned the writers. I'm, I'm glad you brought the writers up. I, I, I was intrigued by the way that, um, that the writers on the one hand had, you know, kind of little or no sort of creative control, really, you know, even though they're, you know, kind of producing the, uh, the sitcom. But at the same time, um, you know, we're desperately trying to kind of, you know, play around with the form and, and to kind of push boundaries. And yet the product was, as you said, I, I mean, the, the word respectable does so much kind of work in, in, in what you've, you've alluded to and, you know, kind of people who um, not just engage with sitcoms, but, you, you know, are kind of thinking critically about these issues will know exactly um, the, the point you're making. And, and I wonder if, maybe I'll phrase the question as something like, you know, to what extent are the writers responsible or to what extent, you know, do the writers have any kind of uh, agency in um, producing these kind of narrow, respectable versions of black gayness? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think um, they partly have some agency, but the, the nature of the writers' rooms are that, generally the room is doing the writing. It is just that someone sort of gets designated as the head writer. So oftentimes, uh, with the exception of the labels episode, and I would also add the good news episode, and that's because it was the pilot uh, episode. But otherwise, um, the writers are talking about partly sort of coming up with the idea and at the very least, they're figuring out the story or the the broad beats of the story while they're still in the in the room. So part of it is that their name goes on it, and in some ways they absolutely have written it, but there is a way that the other writers 
can sort of throw in ideas that the showrunner can say, listen, like, that's not what we're doing. Like, we're going to do it this way. And so um, with Moesha, for example, the showrunner ultimately, um, you know, pulls rank and says, I'm the showrunner. This is my show. And this is how we're going to do it. Don't care. And so there is, in some ways, some agency, because of course, like you can, um, as a writer, you can take your toys and you can go home. At the same time, you are probably still going to have your name on on the episode because you you wrote it. And so there is a kind of carefulness because there is, one, people want to maintain employment, but also there is a way that they are very careful about being offensive. And and when we say being offensive, I think partly they're afraid of being offensive in the eyes of organizations like GLAAD and watchdog groups like that. So they partly certainly do have some semblance of agency, but it is absolutely circumscribed agency. And they're always beholden to someone else. Yeah, whether that's, as you say, kind of, you know, community representation or whether it's the uh, the assumptions of what um, a potential Black audience wants or is comfortable with or, you know, will we'll sort of put up with or almost. And th- this, I-, I suppose, you you kind of slightly take apart um, at the end of the book um, when, when you you get into the um, audience research. But but another element of, of the audience is this um, aspect of laughter. And, and it's funny in a way that, you know, talking through the kind of the polit- political economy, the industrial uh, production of, of comedy um, can, can often mean that we don't actually talk about are things funny? <laughs> you know, are, are people laughing? You know, and, and, and again, you, you've kind of, uh, gestured towards the issue about, you know, well, how do we um, create things that are on the one hand funny, but also, you know, um, are not offensive in a variety of, of different ways to different communities. And I guess laughter is is a really important element, partially because it's something that um, ends up kind of being part of the constraints on representation. But it's also something that um, is to do with, I, I, and again, you, you've mentioned this already, how the um, Black Cast sitcom is actually produced, you know, the kind of the physical infrastructure um, of, of the set and, and, and the uh, things like the laugh track or to a lesser extent kind of laughter from a, an audience. So I, I wonder if you could talk me through the kind of, this sounds like a really bizarre question, but the kind of function of laughter in the uh, in the Black Cast sitcom and, and what that means for uh, representations of Black people. So um, I was initially really very interested in thinking about the laugh track because the laugh track has been sort of understood as being so integral to the sitcom as a form. And... And then as I was sort of doing my own research, I found like this tiny little passage in a book that suggested that in the 1970s, there was a, there was the development of what is considered a black laugh track, 
which is not only just the laughter, but it's particular kinds of reactions. Um, so oohs, ahs, and so, so on and so forth that have a kind of, in a stereotypic way, of course, a black cadence that we can, like, that we can understand. And so I was interested in thinking about this corpus of, of sitcoms and thinking about and thinking through the laugh track, particularly because two of them are, um, you know, are sort of our traditional uh, develop, our traditional model rather of sitcoms, where it's you know we're shot in front of a live studio audience, and then uh, actually I'm sorry, three of them are shot in front of a live studio audience, but two of them are actually shot on a soundstage, and that was the thing that was really got me really thinking about this is because. What that means is that they're adding the laugh track entirely in post-production. So there is, you know, some person who is sitting there watching the footage along with either the showrunner or the episode writer, and they are actually deciding where laughter goes, how big the laugh is, how small the laugh is, if there's a reaction, and so on and so forth. And then also to even think back to something like Moesha, which is shot um, live in front of a studio audience. Uh, in my one of my first interviews with the writer, he talked about how big the laugh was um, when uh, this kind of stereotypic character comes through. And so I wanted to really examine sort of what the what is the work of the laugh track because on one hand we think of it as like oh people are just laughing and i wanted to think of it as an ideological tool and also because of these uh, these shows that are shot entirely on a sound stage i also wanted to think through well, like if we are actually hearing the laughter in a sort of shot in front of a live studio audience um, series, does that actually mean that's where the laughter was and where it was not? And like, could the laugh track be sweetened? And so in thinking about that, I wanted to think about where were the laughs in these episodes. And what generally shook out is that there was a way in which um, the laughter was always centered around the idea of the idea of queerness. And oftentimes what happened is that jokes about queerness were often told while the queer character was not in the scene. So it was sort of in some ways understood as this kind of safe space to laugh at this kind of humor. And even let's also be clear, um, most of these roles, if not all of these roles, were played by heterosexual men um, playing a gay character. But there is a way in which sort of the removal of those characters from the scenes where the majority of the laughs take place is really fascinating. And also the way that even when there is laughter, when the Black gay characters are in these scenes, the laughter is sort of after the, um, often after the heterosexual characters part of uh, uh, speaking parts, rather than necessarily allowing the uh, Black gay characters to be the folks who are generating laughs through perhaps saying something clever or, um, or some other such thing that might be otherwise funny. 
So there is, in the laugh track, there's a way that the laugh track functions to decenter the Black queer experience, even as these series, um, the, or these episodes rather, are ostensibly supposed to be about their queerness. Yeah, as you've mentioned, you know, it's the um, the recurring characters, almost all of whom have, um, you know, particular kinds of um, heteronormative um, attachments in, in a variety of different ways that are, you know, the good guys, you know, and partially um, this is something that, you know, we, we see a lot. And it, it's funny, you know, you mentioned that kind of 70s style tonight on a very special episode approach to, to these questions of representation. But also at the same time, um, it might lead us to forget that, you know, there is an audience who is supposed to be represented by these characters and the book closes with, with a consideration of that um, by going out and like literally talking to that audience. And it was really fascinating. I, I, I guess I, I, I sort of got a sense of the ambivalence of the representations that run through uh, the black cast sitcoms that you've analyzed and to an extent an ambivalence about the representations that came um, from the men that you interviewed about these black cast sitcoms and and i'm interested uh, i guess in in two things you know one is that so what did they think but but also what was the element of kind of um possibilities for change you, you might correct me if i'm wrong but i didn't get a sense of a kind of you know a great demand that you know um, the black cast sitcom had like catastrophically failed this community and you know there was there was a real kind of burning sense of injustice but more a kind of a sense of they need to do better yes yeah so it was a sense of they need to do better but you know at the same time you know one of the things that really you know shined through for me in thinking about these interviews was that so many of the men felt a kind of remove from these representations primarily because they understood that these representations were not for them. And so they understood that, yes, in some ways it was about Black gayness, but it wasn't actually for them. And so there was a way that they watched it with a kind of ambivalence because they were like, listen, perhaps somebody is enjoying this. I'm not the target demo for this. And so I feel like that was one of the things that was so um, extraordinary about these interviews is this idea that there was a parsing in some ways, a parsing of audience um, that the industry wasn't doing. And the industry, I would argue, in many ways has not done, even contemporarily, that these men were doing and saying, this isn't the type of show that I might watch to see myself reflected back. And instead, what they were saying is, um, oh, well, let me back up. Let me say this. One part of it is that they were simultaneously very much like, I don't understand why this is the end of the story. And so part of part of what is 
interesting about to go back to the writer's room and then come back to reception is that in the writer's room, there is this sense that the part of why the narrative, I'm sorry, the generic closet functions narratively is because coming out as gay is the thing. And so these men, when they're watching these shows, they understand coming out as a beginning, i.e. like one comes out and then starts their life in some ways as a Black queer subject. And for the sitcom, coming out just produces information. And then like that's the end of the story. So on one hand, the Black gay men are like, Oh, okay. So, like, I assume that there's a couple of other episodes in which this character just shows up and he's just, like, hanging out and, like, we know that he's gay. And within the writer's room, they're saying, well, I mean, we've done the, we've done the gay story. Like, if the gay, like, if we aren't doing coming out, what are, what's the gay story? And so there is that kind of disconnect, even in their ambivalence, there's this disconnect to sort of, to understand why this is the gay story. And partly that is why they understand these programs as not being for them. Um, And then in some ways, they also don't necessarily have hope for the Black cast sitcom. Instead, what they have hope for is other genres. And so when I ask them to talk about programs that um, that they think do it right or like what they would do to fix it, uh, to fix representation, if, re- if representation is even fixable. Um, they talk about other genres. So they talk about drama. They talk about even sort of the melodrama and the ways that those kinds of spaces tell different kinds of stories um, that engage perhaps queerness broadly construed or Black queerness specifically. So in some ways, they're really partly ready to kind of throw away the the Black cast sitcom in terms of the way that it will engage with with Black queerness specifically. You you mentioned uh, drama, other genres. uh, And I'm interested to know, is is that kind of what your next set of projects is, is going to be about. Um, one of the problems, I suppose, about writing a book uh, like The Generic Closet is that, you know, you sort of reach a point with the text where you say, well, you know, what more can be done if we have a system that, you know, in some ways is perfectly set up to produce these narrow and, you know, problematic but not too problematic representations um and i'm interested to know are you going to find something um for a next project around comedy uh, and the sitcom are you going to be looking at drama um are you going to be doing something that's you know kind of completely different in terms of, of future work so uh yes and no is the answer so um partly I, my next project is partly sort of pulling, um, pulling in some ways at the sh- at some of the strings in uh, the last chapter on reception and um, is doing sort of a full-fledged um, study of Blackness and Black fandoms. 
Um, so that is sort of part of where the next project is, is going. And then there's also uh, in the conclusion where I talk about uh, black cat, the black cast melodrama and talk about things like empire and um, the haves and the have nots as programs that have these longer engagements with black gayness. I am going to be writing an essay for uh, an edited collection that sort of talks about what does, like, what does the Black queer life look like beyond the generic closet? And so what does, like, what does melodrama offer us? And why does melodrama offer it to us? Um, So in other words, I'm interested in sort of why this parsing all of a sudden of what we might understand as Black women as an audience. And part of it is the Shonda Rhimes effect. Um, And also the Nielsen's, I believe, starting in 2011, started to really pay attention to, to Black women and their spending power. And so there is a way in which, um, because again, we rely in part on stereotype, there is a way in which we believe that Black women have a closer, perhaps less antagonistic, whatever you want to call it, relationship with um, with gay men, and particularly Black gay men, so that the melodrama can actually be this space where um, where that kind of work might be able to happen. And so I think what's what's interesting about it is that we partly think about the sitcom broadly construed as this way that um, we can talk about difference because we get to sort of laugh it off and and laughter gives us that pressure valve for these quote unquote hot topic issues. But it's interesting to me that the melodrama um, is sort of doing that work for for blackness. And we could also argue that broadly construed the melodrama has done a lot of work or the soap has done a lot of work um, in terms of sexual representation um, throughout throughout television history. But I think that's that's partly where my next project is gonna gonna head. Sounds like you need a full book on it, not just an essay. Well, you know, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I I write an essay and then it's like, oh, there's more. And then I'm like, okay, fine. I'll write a book about it. Look look forward to reading it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.